You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. It's not easy. And uh, if you've ever, I mean, it's, can you imagine trying to stay healthy? Just do what you've got to do to stay healthy. But what about... Uh, living in a city where it, they make it even harder to stay healthy. And you may not even recognize that, like, uh, the, the data showed that in Massachusetts, one in uh, – there's 547 physicians for every 100,000 people. And in the South, in those five states that are struggling in the South, there's 87 physicians for every 100,000 people. It's crazy. And so at some point, it's not enough to just only tell people, you know, you just got to be disciplined. Well, you can be the disciplined one in those areas. You totally can be, by the way. Um, but uh, there are some things that, that we all need to do to be to exercise a little more discipline in our own life. So think about your life. Where do you need to pick up a little bit more discipline? Where do you need to really get your act together? A little bit more. And I want you to have an idea in your head because whether it's just watching less Netflix, exercising more, um, spending more time with your family, being disciplined to put your phone away, those are all things that each and every one of us could uh, and probably should be doing, right? Um, one of the things we, we might want to do too is to um, choose to focus our firepower one one of the things I've found is if I keep trying to do everything and be disciplined everywhere, I mean, discipline is a limited reserve. You have so much uh, energy and ability in you to do something. And the, some of the research shows that the the later in the day, the harder and harder it gets for people to actually exercise more and more discipline. It might be easier, especially if you spend an entire day having to be disciplined, not getting mad at people, not being you know angry, not having blow-ups, not eating that really good lunch. If you've been exercising discipline all day, you might know you might notice that the later it gets in the day, the harder this gets. So uh, instead of having five different things that every day you're trying to exercise your discipline on, what if we could just try to become more disciplined on one thing? A day. Let's try to just use as much of our firepower as we can on that one thing. And sometimes, if you may have noticed that, like when you're using a garden hose, um, you put your thumb over the end of the hose and you kind of restrict it a little bit. And by restricting the hose, you can actually create a stronger stream and a more directed focus stream. That's that's kind of what we need to do is there's power in restricting a little bit and focusing our, our uh, discipline to be able to handle something um, and, and to be able to take it on a little bit more in a focused way. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. There's a great book by Greg McKeon called Essentialism, another book by Sean Acor called The um, Happiness Advantage. Both are great books that have, that are now sharing all of the research about how to use uh, how to create positive psychology in your life, how to be happier. Sean Acor talks about a rule called the 22nd rule in his book The Happiness Advantage. And that rule basically uh, helps you know people that waste time get out of it. They call it activation energy. You know, it takes 
energy to get a project or an activity started. It's just that little spark that everyone needs to have. But you don't need to always have a ton more discipline to do it. You just need to decrease the amount of activation energy that is required to start a task, right? So if I, for example, um, if I like watching television at night and I'm trying to stop watching television, then I need to increase the energy it would take me to watch television. So an example that Sean Acor gives is, well, what you ought to do is go put your remote control upstairs in your bedroom um, so and or the batteries upstairs in the bedroom and the remote control in your office. So if you want to watch TV, you now have to get up, walk to your office, go all the way upstairs, get your batteries, and then put your batteries in and then come back down and watch TV. And because that's so much activation energy, you're probably less likely to do it. And the reverse is true. If you want to get something done and make sure you are accomplishing tasks easier, then you've got to figure out a way to get that activity started and going within 20 seconds. So if you wanted to watch more TV, right, then you'd want to have the remote right near you as close as you can, as easy as you can. You'd want to spend all the energy to get your four remotes converted into one universal remote. Bada boom, bada bing, you're done. So that is called the 20-second rule. And um, you don't necessarily need a ton more discipline to do that. You do just need to make sure that we are focused and doing and making the, the what seemingly is difficult, make it a little easier to do. Uh, another thing you could do is make sure that you have routines and rely heavily on your disciplined routines. So make traditions, make habits. If you want to make it easier to run in the morning, make sure that you have a routine of having your shoes right by your bed. Maybe even go to bed and sleep in your jogging or your running clothes that you will be running in tomorrow. And then make a routine of how you're going to get up. And once you've kind of turned it into a habit or a routine or a pattern, you don't need to think about it every day. It's going to – the pattern itself will operate on you. You can also evaluate your routines regularly and and make stuff happen. There are ways, folks, that we – each and every one of us can become a lot more disciplined if that's what we're seeking after. And – or we can sit back and just keep saying it's hard. It's really hard and keep telling the story of how hard it is to exercise discipline, how hard it is to to do and be what you need to be. It's – again, and I'm – this isn't coming from a guy that is a – seriously disciplined person. But I I do have habits. I do have patterns. I do have routines. And when I start to realize that all I need is about 20 seconds to get something going, another thing is you don't even need to focus on doing the biggest thing. You could go choose what's the smallest thing I can do today to start to move my body more and exercise more. What's the least thing I can do? And if you would just go do that least thing, you would actually probably be more inclined to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So again, it doesn't have to be the biggest things in the world. Sometimes it just has to be anything. And that's uh, one of the fastest keys, I think, for any of us to get a little bit more disciplined. Uh, Again, the two books are um, Essentialism by Greg McKeon, and um, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acorn. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. If you didn't get a chance to see it, uh, the funeral of Barbara Bush was really an amazing, amazing thing, especially in when you watch the present world of uh, politics, 
you can't quite see how any of these people can get along. And then at a funeral, you see sitting there the Carters, uh, George Bush and his wife, the Clintons, um, the Obamas, and Melania Trump is there. And you just think, wow. I mean, each one of these dynasties have fought against each other. Each one of them, you know, did everything they could to take each other out. And yet they sit there and uh, show this incredible force of... um, of positivity, of goodness. Some of it, though, I think was just Barbara Bush. I think she was uh, an amazing person. Married one, you know, married one man, had and the and basically the only man she's ever kissed. Um, it's it's really a beautiful love story to find out how much that that they loved each other. Uh, some of the history, I think, we're going to find out. They were saying that. Barbara Bush um, always seemed to like be taking kind of the back seat, always being quiet and 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 uh, and kind of hiding away a little bit, but really uh, very involved in some some pretty major um, decisions in the White House with both herself and her son. Um, so it, there is incredible power in uh, in the people in our lives, and when you have a dynasty like the Bush dynasty. It couldn't have happened, and everybody said it without a mother and a and a person like Barbara Bush. Very straightforward, very direct. Um, she said, though, a couple of quotes from Barbara Bush: "Never lose sight of the fact that the most important yardstick of your success will be how you treat other people, your family, friends, and coworkers, and even strangers that you meet along the way." They were telling a story about the. Um, uh, a because she was big into literacy, big into reading and and helping um, the reading and, and literacy movement. She was talking about a, an American who was um, coming in. They were doing an event where uh, a person who had just learned to read would actually get up in a big meeting and um, he would read the Constitution of the United States. And uh, he got there and he was a little weirded out. He was a little afraid to have to get up there because he just barely learned to read. So Barbara Bush got up and actually asked if he could, she could read it with him. And she got up and started reading and he would read with her and together they were reading it. And then paragraph by paragraph, Barbara Bush just stopped reading. And then at the very end, you could see this beaming gentleman who was reading and and reading all on his own, um, basically because of some of the decisions and positions she had taken on reading. Uh, and then saw a man in need and went up and helped him get through a very difficult time. So how powerful is that example? Uh, another quote is, if human beings are perceived as potentials rather than problems, as possessing strengths instead of weaknesses, as unlimited rather than, than dull and unresponsive, then they thrive and they grow to their capabilities. They thrive and they grow in their capabilities. Powerful examples. One more quote, believe in something larger than yourself. Get involved in the big ideas of your time. Great uh, great role model, I think, for all of us. Great role model for being uh, a strong, progressive mother uh, and a progressive wife um, and, and having a voice. Powerful, powerful example I think to all of us, and uh, I think we're grateful, and and uh, I'm appreciative as just a citizen for having examples like that out there in this uh, crazy culture that we now live in. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and be more disciplined.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you have a friend who just can't seem to recognize that they're being duped? They don't realize that the door-to-door salesman has fooled them again or that the Facebook is never really going to give away free money just because you copy and pasted something into your status. But how can you recognize, you know, when you're being duped? And, and, and why is it that some people are more likely to fall for it and uh, some aren't? For that matter... What are the, what are these people doing that are duping us? What are their tricks? What do they use in order to kind of trick us? Well, uh, we've got a great um, guest joining us. Dr. Jeremy Sherman is with us. Uh, Dr. Jeremy Sherman received his Ph.D. in decision theory. He has written over 475 articles for Psychology Today and um, is a founding member of an 18-year-old research project founded by Harvard and Berkeley biologist Terrence Deacon. Today he's here to talk to us about how not to be fooled by jerks and not to become one. Dr. Jeremy Sherman, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks for being here. This is uh, this is an interesting article, and um, I really I, I loved it. You've got to describe for us two things, okay? Or define, I guess we have to define our terms. Um, your article talks about uh, suckers and jerks, and you know, for every jerk, there I guess needs to be a sucker, and for every sucker, there's a jerk. Explain what uh, your definitions of these. Okay, I'm probably using a, a pretty normal definition of both, and but I am fascinated by how to define them, um, uh, because we generally define them as anybody who disagrees with us. So if you disagree with me, then you're a sucker or you're a jerk. And I, I have been long interested in trying to find a more objective way to describe that, or else we end up with the world we have these days, which is lots of different factions that disagree with each other, and they're all confident that someone, that their opposition is jerks and suckers. Right. But I, yeah, so, so one way I've framed it is, what is a butthead other than someone I butt heads with? Um, <laughs> it's, a, uh, and, and it's, I, it's true. It's almost like instinctively anybody that doesn't think like me, I might think, uh, meets the role of a sucker. Or a jerk, I guess. That's right, a sucker. Yeah. Or a sucker or a jerk. And actually, in a way, the difference between them is just input and output. Uh, that is, if I'm taking in someone else's uh, uh, beliefs that uh, then I'm a sucker, but then if I espouse those beliefs, then I'm a jerk. I mean, there's one way to think about that. But, it, but I'm really basically working with the familiar definitions, but looking for a way to get beyond our subjective treatment of them. What really goes into being a sucker or a jerk um, that isn't about content. It's really about how you manage, how you think, how you shop among interpretations. It's not about what you think, but how you think. Huh. How you shop among interpretations, because there's many ways to see something or to be pitched something. And so this is really about how you evaluate the data. That's, a, that's right. It's, it, it, and interpretation is, uh, is really what it comes down to. We talk about reading situations. Well, when, when you think about reading, it's not a, a matter of automatically having a transfer of truth from one source to another. Right. It's always got interpretation in there. It's open to interpretation. So it is largely about how we shop among interpretations. Hmm. That's and, a... That's a... And it, and, oh, go ahead. And it matters. 
and it matters a lot. It's, it's some of the biggest shopping decisions we ever make. So I'm interested in it uh, for social welfare generally, you know, how to, how to make society work better. But I'm really mostly interested in it at a personal level. If you shop poorly among interpretations, you can end up wasting years of life and millions of dollars uh, in the long run because you've bought into something that doesn't actually serve you. So I'm really interested in this from a personal perspective as well. How to not be a sucker in our personal lives is where we get the most traction on this issue. No, it's so true. And um, I guess that's part of it is because, like you were saying, if somebody tells me something at my doorstep about what the bugs are going to do to my house, that's why I need to get pest control, um, I guess I now have to interpret it. And you're saying I need to take probably a more active role in questioning the data and shopping my interpretation versus the data they're selling and and, and, and kind of measure this out so it's the best – it's betterment for me and my family. Yeah, that's a, that's a fairly straightforward case. I mean that is one, – one can – then get a second opinion from an, uh, from another exterminator or something like that. But let's take a more personal and subjective version of it. Suppose you're in a relationship that isn't working for you. It could be a business relationship or a personal relationship, a romantic relationship, and it, it's, you're feeling the urge to get out of it. But the other person calls you a quitter or uncaring or unloving yeah. or thinking about leaving. Well, you can end up spending decades of your life in a relationship that turns out not to be the best for you because you're persuaded by what turns out to be empty rhetoric. Let's take the, let's take the concept of uncaring. It's used as a pejorative. It's used as a negative. It means you're doing something wrong when someone accuses you of it. No one feels complimented when they're told that they're uncaring. So we know it's bad. What does it mean? It means you don't care about something. It implies a rule that one should always care about everything. Hmm. Well, you can't do that. Nobody does that. Right. So I'm even talking about at that level, that, that at, at that personal level, if you take that as evidence that you are wrong for not caring about this or that, whatever it is, it could be a person, it could be a cause, someone could call you uncaring for not making something a priority. We're all making things priorities, and that means we're also making other things not priorities. And if we, if we don't understand how that kind of rhetoric can move us, then we become suckers. Yeah. And, and I guess and, and an outsider would, I guess, see that move by your partner as them being a jerk. Um, uh, that's right. And you being a sucker. Yep, yeah. 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 And, and by the way, I'm not arguing that one should leave or not. leave. Right. Right. That's not the question. It's here. just their method. The it's their. Is, is it the method that they're using? Swayed. It's it's being swayed. One way I think about it is that we we have to shift between deciding and decided on lots of decisions throughout our lives. And um, often we are shoved over into a decided state by empty rhetoric, rhetoric that can't actually solve the problem, but makes us think that we don't have to think about it anymore. So I'm more interested in keeping alive the decision, the deciding long enough to make a sound decision, a practical decision from a personal, from, for, for you in that situation. 
And the rhetoric basically puts us to sleep. If someone says, well, you're uncaring, I, I can't leave this relationship because I wouldn't want to be uncaring. Right. Or I wouldn't want to be called a quitter. That has decided it. It basically smuggled a decision into a description. Someone thinks that they're just calling you a, uh, calling a spade a spade when they say, hey, look, you're just a quitter. You know, that's, that's what you are. No, it's not that simple. We all quit things. You can't live your entire life as though um, you never quit something. The question is what to quit. And you can't get to that question if you fall for the kind of empty rhetoric that says uh, quitting is always a bad thing to do. Yeah. You know what? You see this a lot, I guess, uh, don't you, in in the rhetoric of our, our of our politics, of our policymaking, even in the whole gun discussion now, it, it, a lot of stuff is being folded in. And like you said, decisions, it's our, our, our apparent decisions of what side we're on are all being smuggled just into the rhetoric or the description of the problem. What you want to kill yeah, people? I- you know what I mean? Yeah, we, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's like, exactly right. And it, it, so, yeah. So, I, a CPA considers uh, April fifteenth the season, the month coming up to it, to be their season. This is my season. Um, yeah. Politics is a fascinating time to be studying. Uh, it's a, a fascinating arena to be watching this occur in, and 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 we're seeing um, extensions of the slippery, pseudo profound rhetoric. The rhetoric that sounds fancy but isn't actually saying anything. Um, or is making a decision from with only a one sided argument. So to take an old example, we were told that we couldn't leave uh, the Iraq war because it would be cutting and running. Well that's just a direct parallel to what I was just talking about. Cutting and running is to reflect negatively on leaving something. Well do you want to say that you've cut and run every time you leave everything you ever left? Yeah. You can't do that. Sometimes some of those decisions are good ones, some of them are bad ones. You don't want that rhetoric to decide it. And yet in politics, we use that to an extraordinary extent. And I guess, um, is it always, like you said, is, is it always just a really nicely packaged statement, like cut and, cutting and running? You know, your your boots on the ground or whatever. So I, I guess I guess it's really about the language that we're using. Is that is that language sculpted to to make this happen or is it just evolving in our normal day to day conversations? Well, it, it it's a combination and um, it's irresistible. If you're in a position of power and you need to justify um, to a receptive audience, a gullible audience, you can't help but use this stuff. So one of my fascinations is that rhetoric gets better and better over time. That is, if we find a new rhetorical trick by which to convince people of things, whether it be in a partnership or whether it be in politics at any level, in any arena, we don't forget that rhetoric. That is, it works for us, so we're not going to forget it. And yet at the same time, a sucker is born every minute. That is... (laughs) We are all born naive, so it's very hard for critical thinking skills to keep up with the quality of rhetoric that's available. And I do have hopes in this election that one of the, one of the, one of the effects, if we survive this election, <laughs> will be that we will have become more sophisticated in our shopping among interpretations. Yeah. Because oh. you, you need a whole lot of training in a whole lot of bad rhetoric before you start to see that it's bad rhetoric. And in a way, we get that over the years. For example, you look at an advertisement from the 1940s and you say, 
God, who would believe that stuff? Right. So we do become somewhat more sophisticated, but it's very hard to keep up. Well, and it sounds like, too, Dr. Sherman, we've got to be talking about it like we are in order to maybe point it out more. Um, Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jeremy Sherman, um, who is the author of the book Negotiate With Yourself and Win, Mind Minding for People Who Can Hear Themselves Think. Um, Wonderful insight there, plus 400-plus articles on psychology today. We'll come back, continue the discussion about how not to be fooled by jerks and how not to become one. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about how not to be fooled by jerks or to become one. And in order to do that, you got to sucker proof yourself. And there's certain conditions that our next guest or our current guest is uh, talking to us about. Dr. Jeremy Sherman joins us. He uh, has a PhD in decision theory and has written over 475 articles for Psychology Today. One of them um, is this topic we're discussing right now. Plus, he also has a book. Uh, titled Negotiate With Yourself and Win, Mind-Minding for People Who Can Hear Themselves Think. Dr. Jeremy Sherman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, and thank you for reminding me how prolific I've been lately. I'm up to 1,200 articles. Are you serious? Do you ever sleep? I I, I do, but I write pretty efficiently these days. Um, The ideas keep on coming. This is a wonderful... It's a wonderful topic it, it is. because it just keeps on expanding and giving you all sorts of new angles on things. Well, and this is the perfect I, time it. to have you, you because you're, you can help us cut through a lot of the rhetoric that we're hearing. And it seems like this election year is, is almost the perfect laboratory for your um, the kind of decision-making theories. Um, talk to us about uh, – again, let me just kind of make sure I get this straight. Uh, part of this is about you need – suckers who kind of fall for the jerky rhetoric, who like the packaging, right? That's right. That is, um, in in politics, we talk about uh, dog whistles. Uh, That is um, a sound that resonates for some audiences and not others. Um, And I I want to set this straight up front. Though I am progressive in general in my own politics, I'm not really primarily concentrating here on the substance of the arguments. I'm interested in how they're made. Yeah, their method. And that is a a key to becoming, to avoiding being a sucker. We generally think that messages that confirm what we already believe are true. It takes huge resistance to overcome that tendency in ourselves, the tendency to simply assume it's more, it's more true because we already believed it. Right. Um, so, so, so that's part of the training to, to, for critical thinking. Is that, uh, I think of this the, the work as learning how to spin, how to unspin, and how to do both even-handedly. Hmm. How to spin is rhetoric. Uh, how to unspin is critical thinking. And doing both even-handedly means that I have to be as good at, uns- at at spinning my opponent's argument, almost like a lawyer. Yeah. That is, I got to be able to make my opponent's case as convincingly as possible, 
Um, even though my tendency will be to make my own case as convincingly as possible, and I need to be able to unspin my own case um, as well as I can unspin my my opponents. Because what, what most people do with it when they learn rhetoric is they learn rhetoric and critical thinking is they use the critical thinking to attack their opponents, and they use the rhetoric to spin their own arguments. So wow. I'm really interested in how you do it even-handedly. Yeah. And so, so one key, do, do you sense that um, as, a, as a population, I mean, we may lack a lot of critical thinking skills, don't you think, to actually to, to, to sort through and unspin this stuff? Yeah, and it's not just that we're not informed. It's that we're not motivated to, to, to learn critical thinking skills that we – because they're a little dangerous. Hmm. That is, they can undermine our own mojo. Yeah. I need a certain amount of – of, of uh, confidence that I'm right in order to get through my day, in order to stay focused on what I'm doing. And so I'm very unlikely to want to know how to dismantle my own sources of mojo. Huh, this sure. is why we end up with a country full of factions that are absolutely confident that they are 100% right and that the other side is suckers and fools. Mm. What about um, one of the things in your article you cite is part of this is just, I guess, education. And I'm not I, I guess you're not talking formal education, but people that are more apt or likely to buy into a, a jerk's argument would probably be somebody who's who's not as as educated or I guess is not either as isn't open to wanting this information because it'll impact our mojo, like you're saying, or isn't looking for other answers. Well, yes, and and I would argue that that's not just, that's not a rare pathology. I would say that that's fundamental to human nature. That is, we find what what feels like a groove to us, and then we want to stay in it. It's very disorienting to um, to, to to reopen questions, big questions or fundamental assumptions in our lives, and rethink them. It's very hard to do. It's it's costly. I do think that some of this does require formal education. We talk about how our education system is failing us, but really we have to prioritize an education, and the shopping among interpretations is the biggest priority, I think, for a capable society. It, 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 you just, that's that's got to be what education does more than anything else. Facts we can now get on the Internet intermingled with all sorts of nonsense, but of course you can get at facts if you want. How you shop among those facts for, how to, for what, to, what to invest in, that's really difficult work, and I do think it requires some formal education that, that doesn't get enough attention in schools because we mostly still focus on facts. Right, right. Give us the, um, you, you gave about, uh, I think it's four basic questions um, that help us to, to um, I guess, unsucker or sucker-proof ourselves, what, what, are, what are some of the things we can be doing to make sure we don't fall into the category of sucker? Uh, so the first of them would be, can you state, if you hear something profound, sounding, because it uses, let's say, those dog whistle words, the words that evoke in you or stir you to enthusiasm and, 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 uh, and all that, can you state it in plain language? Um, I was talking to a friend yesterday, a libertarian friend yesterday, who told me that freedom unites. Um, okay, those are two <laughs> powerful sounding words. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I was challenging him because I was saying, it's interesting, you, libertarians want to make a very big change in the country. Um, and, 
And to do that, to make a very big change, you have to unite. But at the same time, you're all advocates of anarchy and doing your own thing. So how are you going to deal with that? Well, he had this pat answer, freedom unites. Okay, well, those are two simple enough words. <laughs> but if you start to unpack it, you notice, wait a second, that's kind, of a, that's kind of an oxymoron. It's like saying unite for autonomy. It's a strange thing to say. Yeah, and yeah. So there's a kind of a, kind of a so it's, it's about unpacking in that way. So now, here's, an, here's another one. Freedom unites, he, he says. Let's just take this as an example. Can you find an exception to that? If you, because generally what, what, what satisfies the sucker part of every one of our minds, the part that just goes by intuition and doesn't think about it, is a, is a sense that you have found a universal truth. Well, he was definitely saying it that way. Freedom right. unites. Always? Can you find an exception sure. to that? Sure. When you're you free... Can find an exception... Yeah, you're free yeah. and you're starving to death, and you no longer want freedom. You now want to eat. Right, that's right. Uh, that would be an example. But also, freedom, if, if you and I are free to choose to do whatever we want, chances are reasonably good, given just the statistics, that you will end up wanting to do something different from me. So, that's right. So how do you want you know, And it so doesn't unite us anymore. Right, and also we can think of plenty of situations in which it's not the case. So the second, so the first one is say it in plain language, that is strip it of its rhetoric. Uh, two is can you find an exception? If you can find one exception, then it's apparently not this general, universal, sweeping formula that will solve all your problems all the time. Yeah, and you have to, so so this is basically an argument against what's called confirmation bias the tendency for all of us to look for examples that support whatever we believe in, not look for exceptions. But if we really want, you know, solid understanding, better interpretations, we have to be very careful about what's a universal rule and what isn't a universal rule. Um, and a lot of stuff is touted as a universal rule when it can't possibly be. Right. In fact, um, and, and speaking it as a fact, oh, I guess that's another one of your points is, yeah, because you can speak so strongly, it sounds factual. That's why you're saying we've got a question using these questions, this data, this rhetoric. That's right. And actually, and rhetoric takes all sorts of forms. The general definition of it is basically mercenary uh, mercenary forms of persuasion. That is, they can be used in support of any cause. They are not uh, specific to your argument, but they're just kind of a, a general purpose way of tipping the scale, putting a thumb on the scale, either dis, dis, uh, discounting alternative perspectives or amplifying the power of, of, of a chosen perspective. That's what rhetoric does. Yeah. It's, it's kind of generic in that, in that sense. And that gets to the third point, which is, could your opposition use your argument against you? For example, we, we like to sound perseverance furthers, but we usually employ it when we're thinking about um, things that we would like to see more of. So imagine if ISIS claimed perseverance furthers. Uh-huh. We wouldn't be so happy with it then. <laughs> right. So it's a matter of basically turning the tables um, in order to see whether this thing is actually as true and valid and affirming as you think it is. If your opponent can use it against you, then it's not as true as all of that. Um, and, then the, and finally, the fourth one does get down to this basic point I was making earlier, which is uh, we often use loaded terms as if they're merely descriptive. So right. notice that I could, I could uh, if I don't, if I don't like 
what you, uh, uh, your commitments, I can call you stubborn. Mm-hmm. If I like your, if I like your uh, commitments, I can call you steadfast. What's the difference between them? A matter of opinion about whether it will turn out well. It's yeah. not at all. There's not a difference between them. It's not like a stubbornness and perseverance or, or steadfastness are apples and oranges. They're one and the same thing. The only difference is the loading. And so it's very useful to be able to strip the loading off of something. When someone calls you a quitter or someone calls you steadfast, those are in a way sort of opposites. Try to, try to strip that off. Translate from the positive to the negative, from the negative to the positive, so that you gain the power of neutral thinking, so you can shop among interpretations. I love it. Oh, that's such great advice. This is what makes us a critical thinker, but also, it, I mean, it can also help us be a motivator and somebody that can enroll people into our thinking. So I appreciate you being with us again, Dr. Jeremy Sherman. Um, go check out his book that uh, is called Negotiate With Yourself and Win. Mind minding for people who can hear themselves think, and uh, maybe even more valuable as well uh, was also twelve hundred plus articles on Psychology Today. All you got to do is look up Jeremy Sherman and Psychology Today. You'll get to his page and start downloading and reading all of those. We appreciate you, Doctor Sherman, and for the rest of us, let's keep our minds uh, open and let's question what we're hearing. Let's question uh, how we think. That way, we don't have to fall into the sucker category powerful stuff. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody. That song means it's time to bring on Pastor Ron Hager. (laughs) He's not a pastor, but you are a, a, a great healer and shepherd of many. Dr. Ron Hager joins us. Ron is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at BYU. He's, uh, his expertise is chronic disease prevention. He is, he is the antidote to death. Thanks. Thank you. And good to have you here, Ron. Today you're going to walk us through um, stress. Like there's, I mean, we're stressed. We People are. are stressed out. Yeah, that's for sure. We are stressed. Why? What? Uh, I mean, is it more? It seems like life should be getting easier. You know, I have some theories about that. Okay. (laughs) You know, it's it's not. It seems like it should be getting easier, doesn't it? Because we're, you know, we're so technologically advanced. We have, uh, you know, all the advantages of uh, of technology and efficiency and productivity. Where we live Um, in the United States, which is wealthier than many other countries, we we seem to have it all. We have running water. Yeah. Except in like Flint, Michigan. Right. Right, but, it's healthy, but but we're but we are pretty stressed. Um, in fact, uh, about thirty four percent of U.S. adults perceived that uh, you know stress affected their health uh, a lot or to some extent. So, in other words, they're they're connecting their stress to their health, and they're saying you know things like if I wasn't so stressed, I wouldn't be so sick, or the reason I'm sick is because I'm so stressed. Uh, and you know, it's a it's a serious problem. I think a lot of it has to do – I mean, one of my – well, I guess it's one of my theories, but there's some evidence to prove this too. You know, Well, I don't know if it's causational, you know, if you can say you can prove it. But even though we are uh, so advanced in so many ways, we're also very disconnected. Yeah. How many times during the day does the average American look at their smartphone? 
you know, to check it. You know, did I get a text or, or you know, they, they just look at. They're not, they're not doing. Yeah. Not how many times they do something with it. Just how many times a day do they look at it? No, it's a great question. Let me check my phone. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with a day. A day. Thirty-two. A hundred and ninety. What? That's the average. Oh, that's pathetic. I, I had no idea. Oh um, my heavens. So 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 we're we're kind of disconnected in my opinion and and one of the things that uh that is horrible that causes stress is disconnection and one of the things that relieves stress is connection so I I wanted to talk just a little bit about this uh today and 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 talk about some things that you know maybe you can try or do but also some of the research that I that I found fascinating this is pretty recent stuff you know mm-hmm. we're talking about you know, in the last four or five years, what uh, scientists and researchers are discovering about stress. But I'd like to share uh, first a, a quote uh, from a philosopher and psychologist named William James. Uh, he's passed away. 1910 is when he died. But listen to what he said. The greatest weapon against stress is our ability to choose one thought over another. Mm. So I think what he's implying there is that, sure, there are events, uh, there are environmental things going on in your life that can cause stress, but how you choose to perceive it could make all the difference in the world, right? right, so, right. So, so your greatest weapon against stress is your ability to choose one thought over another. So it's kind of like whether you let it get to you or not. Now, some researchers uh, wanted to look into this a little further, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and they acknowledge that, you know, it, it's been known for a long time that Stress responses, you know, how we respond to stress are affected by both situational factors, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, uh, you know, it could be something related to school or work, but also stress responses are affected by perceptions of the events. In this study, these researchers, uh, actually an experimentally designed study, uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty strong study design, um, they, they, they wanted to look at... Uh, how the amount of stress and the perception of stress affects health. And basically, uh, they, they, they put people into two groups, uh, one group where they were kind of a control group. They mm-hmm. just responded to stress in the typical fashion. The other group, they were given training in how to adapt, you know, how to change their perception of the stress and actually view stress as a good thing. Oh, yeah. Kind of a, a way to take courage, a way to become motivated, a way to feel like you're getting stronger or growing hmm. and um and, and they followed these um you know th- these people for a period of time uh, and those that reported a lot of stress um and that and that stress had that, that they believe it impacted their health in a negative way uh 43% increased risk of premature death really so, so people who said they experienced a lot of stress and that they believed that the stress had a negative impact on their health, 43% increased risk of death. But that was only true uh, for people who believed that the stress was harmful. Hmm. Okay, so the, the, the other, the, there are other people who experienced a lot of stress as well, but they did not view it as harmful. They had a different perception. They were no more likely to die prematurely during the follow-up period than the people who had the lowest risk of dying and the lowest amount of stress. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you generalize those findings to the entire population, because, you know, this was just a subset of the population that was studied, mm-hmm. uh, there were eight years of follow-up. 
uh, in this study, the researchers estimated that the excess deaths attributable to stress nationwide, or maybe not so much stress, but how you perceive the stress, Mm -hmm. uh, 182,079 deaths or 20,000 deaths a year. Uh, So that's how many people they estimate are dying every year in the United States because of how they perceive stress. Because there are some people that just eat stress up and they they just convert it into something. They kind of thrive on it. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's just – it's energy. It's just good energy. We talked about energy drinks. Some people like the stress to to create that impetus, that movement. But you know what's also kind of fascinating, you know, and you you probably know – uh, quite a bit about this, actually, in, in your work and in your profession, in your area of expertise. Um, but there's, there's, there's a – traditionally, the idea has been to avoid stress, mm-hmm. right? And I think about how we've kind of adopted that into every facet of our life, not just with stress, but uh, with, with just, you know, outright efficiency, mm. you know, getting the most done with the least amount of effort kind of thing. Yeah. And I wonder if that isn't hurting us more than helping us, you know, because um, having resistance, I mean, you know, I mean, it'd be like saying, I'm going to go to the gym and lift weights filled with helium. It's going to be so much easier. Right. You know, it's like, well, that defeats the purpose, right? I mean, in your life, you need challenges. You need something to push against in order to become more resilient and to become stronger. Yeah. And if you remove all of the – or make attempts to remove all of the things in your life that cause resistance, what are you left with? You're left with a, a, a body, maybe physically, emotionally, mentally, that, that has become atrophied. Just mm. like you can't get stronger by lifting lighter weights. Right, right. You know, you have to lift the heavy things in yeah. life. So that's kind of another perspective. And I guess. anxiety, uh, people with anxiety, it shows that they, when they tend to withdraw, they also just induce more anxiety next time because they they haven't upped their game, they haven't upped their ability to go deal with a stressful thing. They just yeah. have learned to avoid it. Yeah. So so maybe the idea here is not to help people avoid or eliminate stress as much as it is to help them think positively about the stress that they have in their life. It kind of goes back to what you do with the data of the stress. Stress seems like it's a normal thing for all of us to experience, but then what we make it into is is kind of going to determine if you heal or if you keel over. Right. And and one of the other things, Matt, that's important to to remember is that you've got to figure out ways to uh, not make the stress chronic. Yeah. You know, sometimes people go to bed at night, they wake up in the morning, go to bed the next night, wake up the next morning. And this goes on for days, weeks, or sometimes even months where the same thing is stressing them. Uh, and that can be very problematic. But all these things that we've talked about today, the ideas from the American Psychological Association and the findings of this research indicate that these types of approaches can have acute effects on relieving your stress. Yeah. So while it might only relieve it temporarily and then the stress comes back, if you do these kinds of things regularly, then you're always getting the stress in the right perspective, or at least the stress is there, but your perception of it mm. is in a different perspective. And do just do do one of them. You don't need to yeah. do all of them, no. but one of them could create a major intervention for you. Dr. Ron Hager, we appreciate you. Again, uh, he's our health evangelist. He's He brings in the health <laughs> And he's the antidote to death. You're not going to want to lose him. 
Uh, Ron, thanks again. Again, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences at BYU. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. A little coach's corner for you here. Um, as we've been learning about the value of time, right? You want your time, uh, and those people that chose time over money, they showed a, a higher sense of happiness. And uh, the researcher, Ashley Willans, was telling us that they do show a higher level of happiness depending on what they go do with their time, right? And one of the things she kept mentioning over and over and over was the fact that if they go and spend it with people they care about, with the relationships that matter to them, then it matters. So time matters, um, but it's not the time that's going to just make you happier. It's what you do with the time. It's the choice of how you spend your time. And so um, in the Coach's Corner, I wanted to just give you some ideas of maybe how to strengthen the time that you have with the people that you love, right? Because, you know, have you ever gone on a trip with your family and you thought, oh, wow, when's this thing going to end? I mean, I love them and everything, but we've got three more days of this trip. So here's some rules of just uh, how to hopefully find the time and actually spend the time that you find to make a little healthier relationship. One thing, number one, is find the compliment, not the critique. Um, If all of a sudden in the middle of this time that we're spending together, what we're doing is just critiquing each other, whether the critique is out loud or not, if I'm sitting there thinking of, man, why does my wife do this or why are my kids like this? And that's where my head goes. Eventually, that's where my heart will go, right? My thoughts are going to lead to my feelings. If I am thinking critique, I'm going to feel negative. And if I feel negative, I'm eventually going to act it out. I might just speak it out. You guys are lazy. Or I might act it out and just start slamming doors and whatever. So make sure that when we are together, we try to find compliments and use more positive language. If anything, have at least more positive thoughts. And Because and, remember, your language is going to communicate that you care or not. Um, another rule is lose the excuses. Uh, I taught time management for years with um, the industry leader, Franklin Covey, for years doing it. And in and out, heard every excuse you could imagine about why people don't make time in their lives. And for for important things. But now we're finding out by the research, whether you make the time or not, you're going to pay for it because it's going to be your happiness. It also could be your health. You may have a great excuse for why you don't exercise, but in the end, it's just still your body, right? So it it's not about more time. If I gave you another day, you would use it the exact same way you choose to use every other day that's free to you. It's so careful of your excuses because... Nobody buys them anyway except you. And uh, if you really want to have some peace of mind and some happiness, you're going to eventually have to choose it. Another rule that uh, comes from the book First Things First is uh, a simp- it's a time management book is the simple idea of make sure you're focusing on the important, not the urgent. 
Most of us as humans spend our lives reacting to urgent things in our lives. If the phone rings, you're going to pay attention to it, right? If you keep getting text messages that keep pinging your your device, you will look down at those text messages. But just because something is urgent doesn't equate to it always being important. All things that ring in this world are not equally important. And many of the things that are most important in our lives aren't urgent until you've lost them. Like your health is always important, but it's not urgent until they're calling 911. Then it's like, I shouldn't have done that taco cleanse for 30 days. It's killing me. Important things sometimes are not urgent until it's too late. So make sure you're asking yourself a very simple question every day. What's the most important thing I can do today to strengthen my relationship? Or what's the most important thing I can do today to have a positive impact at work? Ask the important question, not the what's the most urgent thing that needs to be done. And last but not least, sit down with the people you love and formalize time. As Ashley told us earlier, plan your time ahead. You already know three weeks from now you have a free afternoon on Saturday. It's already there. So go put on the calendar next Saturday. We're going on a date. Plan ahead. By planning ahead, you'll actually always have time with the people you love. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, just when you thought it couldn't be, you know, bad enough. Holy cow, here we go. According to uh, Stephen Hawking, you know, one of the smartest men around, advanced aliens could conquer and colonize our planet. Here come the aliens. Is that a UFO landing there, Ben? I think it's from... Have you ever seen the movie Signs? Signs? Yeah. I think this is the same kind of thing. Oh, is it? They're sending us signs. It actually just sounds like a guy whistling on a ham radio. Wait, I think I know what they're saying. What are they saying? Well, what they were saying. What did they say? Give us Matt. Oh, boy. Oh, crap. Oh, man. I'm in trouble. That's not what they're saying. According to science scientist Stephen Hawking, he says you may have some new things to worry about, like a potential alien invasion. He said if aliens visit us, the out could, outcome could be much more like when Columbus landed in America, which didn't turn out so well for the Native Americans, Professor Hawking told El Pais. He said such advanced aliens would perhaps become nomads looking to conquer and colonize whatever planets they can reach. He said the physicist, uh, by the way, who had suffered, remember, a motor neuron disease since his 20s, explained that the existence of aliens is beyond doubt. To my mathematical brain, the numbers alone make thinking about aliens perfectly rational. The real challenge is to work out what aliens might actually be like. He also explained that the best chances for survival of the human race is to find a new home on another planet. Now, I don't understand that because uh, if they can find us on Earth, won't they find us on Mars? Now, with this great discovery on Mars that we can have that there's water there, you know, we could get in there, do some filtering, start growing some crops and live on Mars. There is an increasing risk that a disaster will destroy Earth. Again, I'm not hawking, but is there not an increasing risk that a 
that, you know, a disaster could also destroy the next planet we find. Ah, aliens. I therefore, according to Professor Hawking, he says, I therefore want to raise public awareness about the importance of space flight. I have learned not to look too far ahead, but to concentrate on the present. So I agree. Let's get uh, NASA back up. Let's get that thing going. Let's get, let's get to Mars. Let's get to the moon. Let's have a ladder to the moon. Let's also help this poor guy. Holy cow. Sad story uh, out of uh, – it's so tragic. I think it was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. A man was sentenced for burning down his home, his family home, to rid it of aliens and demons. Burnt the home down. Joshua Whitman, 34, told police he set his home on fire in Ephrata Township, Pennsylvania, because aliens were living in the walls. Yeah. So apparently they're already here. This is the tangled web of life. Mm. Now that is an alien. That's a UFO right there. That is... That brings chills. Oh, no. oh. I think we know what we need to do. We need to phone home. No, don't burn down the house. Don't burn down the house. E.T. I'm sorry. We're, we have to burn the studio down. Ouch. Oh, that was a great show, too. E.T., a great a- alien. So if the aliens are like E.T., come on. Just want to cuddle with him. It's a weird thought, isn't it? But don't burn your house down. If aliens came in and take over, honestly, if you've gone to a Walmart, you've seen what there is to see. I'm pretty sure if we have aliens on Earth, they're at Walmart or they're, you know, they're at a county fair. It's... It's just humanity, folks. This is the tangled web. And I love it because life is about a bunch of people on this big ball of mud we call Earth trying to figure out how to make it through without making everyone's life worse. Welcome to Earth. (laughs) Welcome to Earth. And honestly, if you want to, you can worry about the aliens that aren't even living here. But I'd worry about all the crazy people you're driving next to on the roads in the people you go to work with we're we're all already major martians and aliens when it, when we come to this think of it we are not even good with ourselves our bodies we're a little messed up so let's just keep it home worry about home don't burn down your home for heaven's sakes you don't need to go to jail for this the aliens They're not coming from out of space. They are among us already. I work with one. Not going to name a name, but his name rhymes with Ken Blosden. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Is your job going to just be outsourced? I mean, will there be a day where the radio talk show hosts will just be outsourced? I mean, it already is in the DJ world, right? They just put in all the songs and... A computer will play the song for you. I think that's going to be the first job that's outsourced. Well, I actually think board operators, 
will be the first job that's outsourced. No, there, there's a certain talent in art that goes behind board operating. No, see, no. See, the difference with the, the talk show host is that we have to know how to work with people. You, for example, Benny, you don't have to work with people. You don't have to communicate. Yeah, it's, it's hard. We, we wish you would. Don't get me wrong. We actually wish you would talk. But by the way, that was interesting. Yesterday, I, I left the confines of my office where I like to just hibernate. And came out where the people are, and you were out there with you were out there, and all of the producers were talking to you. You were like involved in a in a conversation. I know it was like a real conversation. It was it was like the first time I think in a year that I've seen you do that. Yeah. What's wrong? I are you okay? Isn't this supposed to be good? No, I think it's fantastic. Oh, okay. But it's like I'm just wondering: Are you sick? Um. Was there? Did you need it's, a ride? It's a terminal. <laughs> so but, were, you, were you looking for a ride from somebody? Is that why you were talking to him? Well, Normally, you don't talk to the girls. Well, I, I was looking for a ride, but they all said no. So I thought I'd just yeah. keep talking to let them. Me just, let me just tell you: if you ever need a ride, Terry's here. Oh, okay. Terry will take you wherever you I, need to go. I don't know. He sometimes he has like a really stone cold look on his face. Yeah, that's Terry. Yeah, that's just how Terry rolls. Well, will he? You know what we ought to get you? Uh, you've heard about those um, self-driving cars? Yeah. Did you hear now they're self-driving strollers? Have one. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't share that. Um, Smart Bee is marketed as the first intelligent stroller in the world. It uses motion tracking sensors to follow you wherever you go, allowing for hands-free strolling. Isn't that great? So you just put your baby in the stroller and then you just walk and then the stroller follows you. That would be great. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> You're a baby. Um, like all great ideas nowadays, the Smart Bee is currently in its crowdfunding phase on the Indiegogo website. However, if all goes correctly, the stroller will be easily uh, will easily be the most decked out baby carrier ever created. In addition to an electric motor that will assist in movement, the stroller will also feature wireless speakers so your baby can rock out a bottle warmer, are you kidding, a rocker, and three retractable canopies. Plus, the, the you can have a temperature-controlled bassinet. It'll only cost about $3,200. So once again, the rich and their babies get to stay warm while the rest of us are freezing. The future doesn't look so good for the poor people. Or just us average folks. Anyway, uh, you can expect shipment April 2017. Ben, I'm worried about your future. You can easily outsource ice cream. No, you can't. No, you can. No. Not the way I make it. That's true. Um, I could just send my kids to the store and say, son, go get some ice cream. Outsourced. Well, well, that's buying ice cream. That's not making ice cream. Right. But how many outsourced ice cream makers – I mean how many ice cream makers are we going to need in the future if one robot can make every kind of ice cream? Yeah, but it's it's an art form, man. Like, I know. What would happen though is the robot would come buy your ice cream. I would like to buy some ice cream and it would buy your ice cream. It would then take your recipe and then the robot makes your recipe. Boom. You're out of business. Anyway, I'm just trying to help you. 
Make sure you focus on it. Get the right product. Don't sell to robots. Don't. Got it. <laughs> Mental note. Don't sell to robots. That's the Coach's Corner, folks. Fairly basic stuff, eh? We'll be right back. Each year, scientists and doctors change flu vaccinations in order to protect people from the newest mutated strands of the flu. The flu and cold season is in full swing and is expected to peak early in the new year. Bacteria, like viruses, become more resistant to the medicine and treatments that we have today. So how does bacteria and viruses become resistant? And how are they introduced into our environment? Here to speak with us today is Ph.D. Valerie Harwood, professor and chair at the University of South Florida. And we're talking about an article she wrote, How Do Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria Get Into the Environment? Dr. Harwood, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, hi. Thank you. Good to have you um, uh, to, to kind of walk us through this. This is – it's uh, – it, I guess in the end, we hear more and more about antibiotic-resistant bacteria. But what fascinated me about the article is this this idea of how it gets into our you know our lives, how how it gets into our neighborhoods, our communities. Can you just walk us through first of all? I guess bacteria. How is it different from a virus? And then talk about how these antibiotic-resistant bacteria are getting out there. Okay. Well, viruses are obligate or they have to be um, intracellular pathogens, meaning they have to live inside of our cells. And they actually use our cellular machinery to, uh, to grow and reproduce. And because they're so intimately linked with our cellular biology, there aren't, there aren't very many targets um, that we can use to eradicate viruses. And so when you have the influenza or um, norovirus, for example, there's, um, there's no simple antibiotic that you can take to rid yourself of the infection. Bacteria, on the other hand, are fundamentally different forms of life and use different um, cellular machinery. They have different structures in their cells. And so we we can actually capitalize on the natural um, microbial community's arms race in a sense and use their tools to our advantage because antibiotics are natural products Mm. originally. For example, a lot of people know that the first antibiotic was isolated from the, um, the, the fungus penicillium. And so... During the you know, so-called the golden years of antibiotic um, resi- antibiotic therapy exploration, uh, most of the antibiotics that were found were natural products, and so bacteria produced them naturally in order to kind of gain an advantage in mostly in their soil or plant environments. And so it's only um, intuitive that that bacteria, other bacteria, would have the capability to have some resistance to these antibiotics. And so, again, we have this idea of, of kind of an arms race of, well, you know, bacterium A is going to produce a compound that's going to inhibit bacterium B, and then maybe then bacterium B has a mutation or an alteration in some structure, and so then it becomes resistant to that antibiotic. And this has been going on, mm. you know, literally 
for for millennia before we happened upon the idea that we could use these natural products in order to um, contribute to our health. And so, you know, the, the the arms race then, as we see it in our in our um, efforts to to find new antibiotics that will not be um, you know that, that will not be vanquished by the bacteria is a difficult one because they have many ways of becoming resistant. And, and we, if I get this right, then um, viruses need need to live in your organism, uh, yes. in your cell structure, to mm-hmm. to exist. Bacteria can become part of your uh, bacterial flora. I don't know what you call it. Uh, mm-hmm. Packaging, and so we carry a lot of bacteria with us that doesn't harm us. Maybe even helps us in some ways. Um, but but exactly. our body's really used to you know dragging along a lot of other bacteria, and it doesn't necessarily make us sick. But we might be a carrier of bacteria that might break down or make someone else sick. All right, and so we call that our norm, our normal flora, and we have a normal flora of our gastrointestinal tract. We have normal flora of our oral cavity. We have normal flora of the genitalia, and so all of our normal flora protects us against invasion from from pathogens hmm. and so um but at times this um even members of the normal flora during times of, of an imbalance in the rest of the flora can become pathogens so for example uh all, almost all people carry staphylococcus aureus in their oral cavity and a lot of them are colonized with methicillin resistant staph aureus which is the dreaded uh, MRSA hmm. And so most of the time they're not these organisms aren't 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 causing an issue but if they if the person becomes weakened if they become immunocompromised if they have some sort of a um a lesion you know an opening in the mouth for example that the organisms can get in and colonize then it can become an issue and kind of as you inferred people can pass these these um antibiotic resistant strains from one person to another and while in one person they may be causing no issue. And another, again, especially if they have health issues or are very young or very old then and don't have as good of an immune system, then they can become um, uh, infected and and become sick. Mm. And this, this to me, this is what was shocking to me, is how this bacteria, it, it's in my body. I carry it in my mouth, in my system. Uh, it does protect me unless it becomes pathogenic. But it's also we we live in a community where we all kind of as a communal body um, have access to maybe each other's. Talk about what's happening in um, St. Petersburg, Florida, in Pinellas County. I mean, and and how we end up then sharing this bacteria. Well, the um, the the study that we did was. Um, precipitated by a, a a big sewer line break, and so it was a pretty main line, and so the spill was over um, over uh, half a million gallons in magnitude. So it was a lot of a lot of sewage that spilled, mm. and it spilled into a drainage ditch, and that ran down into the um, into the uh, the bay waters, and so what we what we were interested in was would vancomycin resistant Enterococci, I'll, I'll abbreviate them DRE for, for brevity, um, if the DRE uh, will be found in this sewage, and if so, will they persist for any length of time in the water and in, and in the um, 
sediment or dirt underneath the water in the drainage ditch. And so uh, kind of to our surprise, we did find VRE. And the reason it was surprising was because generally this bacterium is um, localized to hospitals and occasionally to, to people who may, who may mm. come home with it. So there is some community spread of VRE, but it, it's mostly spread in hospitals. And we had found it some um, five or six years before in hospital wastewater, but not in residential wastewater. So this was residential wastewater, and so we were um, a bit surprised to, to see it. And the, um, we were able to culture the bacteria for several days after the spill, and we were able to detect the genes for vancomycin resistance, which is called the VAN-A gene, for uh, 10 days after the spill. And so it not only was released into the environment, but it stayed there for some time. Mm. And so, so this is a cautionary um, a cautionary tale for the U.S. in general because we know that our sewage infrastructure is getting old. Um, it costs a lot of money to update it or replace it. And so and people don't really realize how many, you know, relatively small sewage spills happen all the time and how much how often these sorts of um, uh, spills get into the water that they may be using for recreation. And so this is, again, it's not, not meant to be alarmist and not to right. say, that, oh, don't go in the water, but more like, you know, so let's think about the how important it is for our, our, our wastewater collection system to be um, updated and to um, and and to be impervious to uh, to release these organisms. You know, we don't want these breaks. We don't want cracks. We don't want this stuff getting out into the um, into the environment. Because we always thought it was, you know, these superbugs were kind of the hospital. They're in the hospitals. Um, so we were always afraid. Okay, don't go to the hospital. If you don't have to go to the hospital, don't go to the hospital. But. Really, I guess the, the idea is this could be in any community. A lot of these places, uh, you know, might get a, a large storm, which overwhelms the the sewage system, overwhelms the pipes, and the then there's backup. And anyway, um, is there? I, I guess we are a community then, really, of bacteria, and we're sharing bacteria. But it's almost like we have to get more on top of this as far as our systems go, our structures go, and uh, I mean, just the infrastructure of the country. Yeah, I think that's important. I think another thing that's important in terms of um, in terms of preserving our antibiotics as such an important tool in our health, in our human in our human health and public health, is that we need to understand that antibiotics cannot cure everything. And so, if you're sick with, um, and you go to the doctor and say, you know, you got a you got a horrible up a respiratory infection and you're just, you know, run down and tired and and you you feel really bad and you go to the doctor and and you say uh, I I just give me something. I need to take something. And mm. I and I know that people do this because I've talked to my friends who are healthcare providers and and people do. They say I need an antibiotic. And if you have a viral infection, you do not need an antibiotic. And in fact, taking that antibiotic will actually select for any antibiotic-resistant organisms, the small fraction that you might have in your GI tract, and then actually kind of amplify the population of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And this especially happens when people don't take their full course of antibiotics. And this is actually, it's a 
it's a it's a linked and also a separate issue. So that even some people who get antibiotics for um, a very valid reason, they may take the antibiotic that should be taken for 10 days. They may take it for three days and feel better, and then they say, "Oh, I don't need to take this anymore." Oh yeah. So they stop taking it. Well, then what happens is that potentially the a, a small fraction of bacteria, maybe of antibiotic resistant bacteria, who were who maybe had had partial resistance to that antibiotic, and so you only took it for three days, and now what you've left in your GI tract is a population that's partially resistant. And so a lot of antibiotic resistance occurs by an accumulation of mutations. And so, mm. so now, or an accumulation of acquired genes, and so now you basically left a half-resistant population in your GI tract that now only needs one more one more gene or one more mutation to become fully and dangerously resistant. And so, um, so, so taking antibiotics for less than the um, prescribed amount of time is like rolling the dice in terms of, in terms of eventually having a full-blown um, resistant uh, bacterium residing in your GI tract that then could be spread to others or, again, could come into play when you, uh, oh, if you, if you become... Uh, you know, compromised or just run down or from some other cause. Great, uh, great advice. Um, and and I guess again, don't push it if you've got a virus. This is it's not going right. to help. Um, we're speaking. We're speaking with Dr. Valerie J. Harwood, professor and chair at the University of South Florida. I believe chair of the Department of Integrative Biology. Um, she's walking us through an article she wrote about how do antibiotic-resistant bacteria get into the environment. Well, one way is we're all carrying them, and then sometimes our infrastructure breaks down. Sometimes we're um, we're creating bigger problems by how we try to medicate, how we try to, to use antibiotics, uh, maybe inappropriately. Stick with us. We'll continue the discussion on the other side of this break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. We'll be right back. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're speaking with Dr. Valerie J. Harwood. She is a professor and chair at uh, the University of South Florida, and we are walking through an article she wrote on theconversation.com. How do antibiotic-resistant bacteria get into the environment? She's been teaching us the the differences really between bacteria and um, viruses, and also about antibiotics and the proper way to use them. Uh, one of the things, uh, Valerie, first of all, again, thank you for being with us and giving us your insight on this. Yeah, you're welcome. I guess it's interesting. You bring up a good point. We we sometimes, it seems like, push the hand of our doctors by we go in there, we know we have sore throat, we are convinced, you know, your sister-in-law, just she just had some antibiotics and it got rid of hers, so let's get rid of yours. And we might be driving the doctors to over-prescribing antibiotics, are we? Well, that, and that, that can occur. And um, our training for, um, for physicians now includes uh, a, lot of, a, a lot of training on the, um, the, the dangers of over, over-prescribing antibiotics and, the, and, our, and our duty to be good stewards of antibiotics. 
so certainly they the the young physicians are and, and I mean all all physicians are becoming more and more aware hmm. of this um of this of this issue. But when we get the antibiotics, I mean really I guess they they could be doing uh is that when they like do a a strep to strep test to see if you have strep throat, they should be swabbing it to make sure you have it before they give you the antibiotics. Exactly, and and, and this, these tests are, are really rapid nowadays, and so you you, know, you don't really have to have to wait that that long. And then if that if that comes back negative, then it's you know you're going to use some you know, some over the counter medications to relieve the congestion and 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 hydrate and rest and and you know you will you'll get better. And a lot of people, um, you know, they take the, if they get the antibiotics and they get better, they think it's because of the antibiotics when, in fact, they would have, they would have gotten better anyway. Hmm. I, I, so, I think we – I envision it just as a lay person with – a very small brain, um, that bacteria, you know, you take you take the antibiotics, you kill the bacteria, they just disappear, never to be seen on this earth again. Then I leave as a pristine human being with no bacteria on me. Um, but in reality, we're all just a bunch of carriers. And um, I, if I take antibiotics, and the more I take antibiotics, especially when they're not necessarily, the more it increases the likelihood that I will have strains of bacterium that are anti that are antibiotic averse. Is that right? right. Resistant. resistant. Yeah. Right. So then I become a carrier of uh, of an antibiotic resistant bacteria, which may attack me, but also could attack someone near me. That's right, and and so that's where um, again you you only want to take these things when you need them, and you only um, and you need to take them as long as they're prescribed for. That's really important. Right. What about, I've heard stories, clarify this for me, about people flushing antibiotics down the drain, uh, just even though the antibiotics have been used by me, and even if I'm using them appropriately, if I then, you know, use the bathroom, then that becomes, uh, you know, that, that those antibiotics are also flushed through me and down into the sewage, and then I guess those can be picked up by other antibiotics downstream, or other uh, bacterium downstream. Yeah, so um what the the theory about what would happen then is that is anti and so antibiotics exert what we call selective pressure on microorganisms, which selective pressure just means that that the the antibiotics are a um a force that will um cause only certain members of the bacterial population to be able to survive. And so there we say that the antibiotics are selecting for the resistant ones, They're, and then that removes the competition from the non-resistant ones. It kills the kills the non-resistant ones, and then allows kind of a free, open field for the resistant ones. And that's really the issue with um, with over antibiotic exposure. And that would be in the in the wastewater uh, treatment system or in the environment as well as in as well as in the human um, human body. It's the selective pressure that's provided by the antibiotics. Again, that selects for the resistant ones against the sensitive ones. That is what's going to be the driving force to amplify hmm. that population of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And there is a communal uh, force here, which seems to kind of go hand in hand with the idea of vaccinations as well. One of the reasons why we tend to be very pro-vaccination as a as a as a country and as a community is because we're really only as healthy as the 
the majority of vaccinated healthy people. Um, we are a community of this. And so I guess part of this is getting everyone on the same page. Uh, how how do we get everyone up to speed? I know that's probably a major thing you're trying to do with your work with so many government agencies. But how do we and what can we be doing just as average, regular folks to make sure we are healthy back with bacteria, viruses, vaccinations? What do we do? Well, I think that... Um the uh, you know the idea with vaccinations is you know the idea of, of herd herd immunity that if that if almost that if almost everybody in the population is immune to a given um, infectious organism, then the, then the then the community is going to be going to be pretty safe. And so with interesting analogy because with antibiotics it's almost it's almost inverse. Like yeah, the opposite. You want all the microorganisms to be to be susceptible to the antibiotic. Um, but the ideas of, of, you know, of good health and good stewardship, good stewardship for the community come in, in in both directions. But, you know, it's interesting because I, I um, gave a talk at a, um, at a, a really neat conference um, last week, and it's called Abracam. And this was basically um, for specialty for minority uh, students in science. And so it was a great conference, but a lot of the students there were asking me, well, the same question, what do we do about... Um, antibiotic resistance and how people view it. How do we get the message across? And so, I had a couple of slides in my in my talk that might be of interest here um, to your listeners. And one of the things I said was, you know, the sheer um, toll on human health that people don't appreciate. So, for example, um, the CDC estimates the number of illnesses caused by antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the U.S. per year at over 2 million. Mm. And out of that, 23,000 deaths. Now, if you think about these 2 million illnesses, and then they estimate the per-patient cost of antibiotic-resistant infection at somewhere between eighteen dollars to $29,000. Mm. So now you think about the amount of money going in to these infections. So the economic burden in the U.S. is... About twenty billion in healthcare healthcare costs and thirty five billion in lost productivity. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. So if you just think about the the toll that 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 these types of infections take on our public health, you know, I think it I think it kind of brings home the point that this is something that you know we can do something about it, and if we can possibly do anything about it, then we really we really need to. And so by again taking care of our of our infrastructure and being good stewards of of these wonder drugs, um, it's it's really uh, it, it can really make a difference. Another thing I wanted to point out is that you know some folks think that well, okay, we can just develop new new antibiotics, but if you if you look at the time course of antibiotic um, discovery and then look at the at the emergence of antibiotic resistance resistance in bacteria. Most of the time, we only have a few years between the introduction of a new antibiotic and the emergence of a of an, of an antibiotic-resistant um, bacterial population. And so, it's really hard to get very far ahead of these of these bacteria because they are so good at mutating. They're good at at exchanging genes, so horizontal gene transfer, and um, and and so. 
even in developing new antibiotics, you know, we still have to have to think very, very hard about how we're going to protect their efficacy as as time goes on. Hmm. And then, as a lot of people know, um, the uh, the business of developing new antibiotics it has not been very attractive to the big pharmaceutical right. companies lately. Right. If you think about it, something like think about something like a statin or a blood pressure blood pressure medicine that a person might have to use for um, uh, 20, 30 or more years, and then you think about an antibiotic that's used for ten days and then and then no more. So, you know, so that's a, that's an economic disincentive for or it's, a, it's an incentive to, to, to make these long lasting drugs, these drugs that, that are used over a person's lifetime, versus an antibiotic that's used for a very short time. Yeah, and then and you've then, got to redo it every two to three years, figure right, out the next got, mutation. Yep. Yep. You've got to keep you've got to keep ahead and and of course probably most people know that the development of these drugs and the testing is really, really expensive. And so that means that we've had, you know, slow, slowly over time, fewer and fewer drug companies are, are pursuing are pursuing the uh, um, development of new antibiotics. And so we saw the same thing with Zika and some of the vaccinations for, right? Because it takes it takes a lot of research, a lot of money. There's so it, one of the ideas was let's let's subsidize it, right? Let's give some government right. subsidies to make sure we have companies that are interested in doing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I and I have seen some some talk of that, and I hope that I hope that it, the talk continues because you know. It's really, it's important. Mm. What um, do we need to worry? I mean, again, I think everybody's heard of that one friend's neighbor's sister who caught that flesh-eating virus in the hospital after having a surgery. Um, is there really anything we can do about the the hospital-born, you know, superbugs? I think I think as as um as patients, you know, you can you can actually um, look up the performance of the hospital before you go in. So you you know you may have some choice in, in choosing choosing a hospital. Um, you can of course um, be aware. Hopefully, if you're if you're feeling good enough, you can be aware of how you know um, uh, the people around you are, are acting. So you know, are they are, are they washing their hands? Mm. Are they you know? I mean, That's... you may not. You may not be able to see that when you're in the hospital, um, but that, I think the big thing is stay in the hospital as short a time as possible. Yeah. Get out of there, get yeah, home get where out. you're you're in with your own bacteria, huh? Right, and and you know, and the hospitals I think are very much along the same lines. Now they they don't want people to stay any longer than they have to, and for economic reasons. And I think that they also recognize that um, it's it's really difficult to be um, to to completely halt the spread of of antibiotic resistant bacteria in an environment where where it's everywhere and right. you know where you're more likely to have them than in a in a normal home environment. Well, Doctor Harwood, thank you so much. Uh, great insights and uh, I think lessons for all of us. Appreciate it again. Doctor Harwood is Valerie J. Harwood, professor and chair at the University of South Florida, chair over the Department of Integrative Biology and expert in water quality, microbiology, and microbial ecology. Man, it's good to have smart people around us, huh? Giving you the lessons you need to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us.
Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! You know, isn't it interesting, the system that we live in, where, you know, we, oh, we're so worried about those super bugs. And it's so out of our control because some super flesh-eating mega bug could take over your body, uh, MRSA, for example. And then our last guest tells us that pretty much all of us have some staphylococcus virus, or uh, not virus, uh, bacterium in our mouth. We might have MRSA in our mouth. It's there. It's kind of on us already, right? And we don't worry about it because we don't understand it. And then we are we go to the doctor, beg him for some antibiotics because we're sure we've got a a problem. But really, we may have a virus. And then they give us ten pills to take, and we take seven of them because we feel better. And then we flush the other three. So in almost every regard, we're we're ruining it. We're breaking the game. We're we're breaking the deal, and we're the cause of our own problem. And yet we don't see we're causing it. And then we're worried about the hospital that can't stop some of these superbugs. This is a community effort. Somebody, you know, the 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 sewer the sewers flood in Florida, and then the kids go play in the water. And then bring home the bacteria, and then grandma gets it. We're a community. And it's not just Florida. New York City, major storms, sewage floods the Hudson River regularly. And when it does, you know, I mean, a lot of, I'm sure there's not a ton of people swimming in the Hudson, but you may be in an airplane crash in the Hudson. It's just, it's, it's a, isn't it an interesting system that we live in? And the rest of us just sit here thinking, you know what? We're going to die because the president's Donald Trump. Trump may not be your biggest threat, folks. It may be your neighbor next door that's not taking all of the pills he's supposed to take to get rid of that bacteria. It may be the neighbor up the street that just flushed her pills. It may be you that's carrying the virus. It may be those that don't vaccinate. I mean, there's a million other threats in our world. I'm not trying to scare you, but there's a reality here. We're going to live or die together. So don't make the president of the United States your biggest problem. Trust me. There's so much more to worry about. Um, not saying they're not. there's not issues there, but just be grateful you've got going on what you got going on, knowing what you're knowing. So and do your part. If we all just do our part, we can figure this out as a species, as, as, as a group of people. We can make this work. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more information to help you live a smart life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.